0: Um, I am going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to be looking at verse 1 to 26, if you've got a Bible I'd love you to follow on. Um, Like Mikey mentioned, there is the opportunity tonight, if you've got questions, to text them as we go and we'll have a go at answering those afterwards, the number is up on the screen, uh, so please feel free to do that. All right, I'm going to read 1 Corinthians chapter 15 verse 1 to 26. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them. That was not I. But the grace of God that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believed. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that He raised Christ whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom of God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. All right, I'm going to pray, ask God for his help as we think through these questions. Let me, let me pray. Lord God, we thank you that we can gather together as your people here tonight. We pray that you'll help us to think through the question of why we should listen to Jesus about life after death. May your word challenge us and encourage us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So just uh, a simple question. How many of you have seen The Good Place? All right, a small number of you. The Good Place, that clip is from a show called The Good Place. It's a pretty fun show. It explores life after death and what it means to be good. And at the start of the show... Uh, the blonde woman, Kristen Bell, she, she plays a character named Eleanor Shellstrop, and she wakes in what appears to be a waiting room that says, relax, everything's fine. She's invited into Michael's office, that's Ted Danson, the old guy with the white hair, and he informs her that she has died, um, but the good news is she's in the good place, not the bad place. And yet Eleanor quickly discovers that there's been a huge mistake. She has been mistaken for a very different Eleanor Shellstrop, who was a very good person, but she knows that she does not deserve to be there in the good place. There's no way she was good enough for it. I think these questions about life after death, about what happens to us when we die, they're puzzling for many, and maybe they're puzzling for you tonight, because there are so many different ideas about life after death, aren't there? I mean, years ago, a very famous billionaire in Australia... Kerry Packer, he had, I think, a heart attack, died in the back of an ambulance. It was the one ambulance in the state that had a defibrillator. And his famous quote afterwards is, I, I've died and been to the other side and I can tell you there is no God. It's one perspective. That's how we got the Packer He paid for them in every amber. Yeah, that's right. Some people believe in reincarnation, that when you die, your soul leaves your body and then goes into another body to go again and live another life. Some people believe in heaven and hell. Some people believe in a middle place, purgatory. Some people just believe that you and I are atoms and when we die, we cease to exist. And how to get there, if there is a heaven, the question of how to get there is also hotly disputed. There's so many different opinions. Plenty of Aussies think that you should just be good. If you're good, you'll be right. Buddhists, they're not trying to get to heaven but nirvana and they follow the eightfold path. Muslims follow the five pillars of Islam to get to their version of heaven. In Hinduism, Hindus aren't actually trying to get to heaven, they're trying to escape the cycle of rebirth and reincarnation. They Go down the path of deeds, be good to escape. Or the path of devotion, get a God to really like you and they'll get you out of there. Or wisdom, know enough, be wise enough and you'll you'll escape. In Christianity, Jesus says, well, I came to live the perfect life that you never could. I died the death in your place that you deserved. Trust me and you'll have eternal life. I think for most people in our culture, the reality of death is something that we work hard to avoid. And that's kind of understandable. You don't want to wake up each day thinking, gosh, I am now one sleep closer to my death. You don't want to live in constant morbidity. But when death actually comes in our lives, often we respond with shock. Sometimes we feel betrayed by the God we believe in, or by the universe, or whatever. Some people in our culture feel offended. I used to work at a school uh, as a chaplain, and when I would say to a group of year twelve students before they they left school, I would often say to them, One of you's going to be the first to die. And they would be, Oh how dare you? We're gonna live forever. And then they start looking around the room and they think, oh, I bet it'll be him, I bet it'll be her. Because we don't think it's going to happen to us. Many in our cultures sort of ease those sorrows with cheap platitudes. But there's a truth here that we all need to wrestle with. If you haven't yet, maybe because you're young and you haven't thought this through and you still think you're going to live forever, we're all going to die one day. The only exception being if, as Christians believe, Christ returns to judge the world before you die, but even then it will be the end of life as you and we know it. And I think the end of life should shape how you live because no one wants to live a pointless life. None of us wants to spend our days following Jesus only to die and find out that Islam was true and Christianity was a crock. Wouldn't that be true? None of us want to live a, a pointless life. We don't want to get to the end of our days and discover that the thing that we centred our life on was just a waste. Which brings us to our questions. We've got two questions that we, we've said I'm going to try and answer tonight. One of them is, why should I listen to Jesus on life after death? And the other is, won't being good or following other religions lead people to heaven? Here's my aim today. If you're a person exploring the Christian faith and wrestling with who Jesus is, my hope is that I will give you reasons tonight to consider trusting Jesus and to see the importance of the resurrection as being at the heart of the Christian faith. Uh, For those of us who are Christians, I'm actually hoping that you'll think through the way our culture approaches death and be able to engage well in it. I'm hoping that in some small way I might encourage you to persevere in following Jesus. Now, here's the plan I want us to start by thinking about our own culture and its approach to life and death. We're going to then go to the second question think about other religions and being good before finishing with 1 Corinthians 15 and why we should listen to. To Jesus, all right, so that's where we're headed. Let's start with our culture. The exclusive claims of Jesus make many people in our culture quite uncomfortable, and I think they make us Christians uncomfortable too sometimes because the Bible makes big claims. Jesus makes big claims. You know, the Bible says there is one God who created everything and will judge all, it says that there is heaven and there is a hell. The Bible's clear that it's Jesus, his perfect life, his death in our place, his resurrection that offers hope to humanity, that when humans turn from rejecting God, they find eternal life. When they put their trust in Jesus, they find eternal life. Jesus says he's the only way to be saved. Um, Those of you who grew up in church, you know the song, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life. That's what Jesus said, clap, clap, right? Right? Um, the thing is, the actual verse, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, it doesn't say that's what Jesus said, clap, clap afterwards. It actually says, no one comes to the Father except through me. That's a that's pretty exclusive claim. And many of us struggle with the implications here because the implication is that the Bible says, unless you trust in Jesus for your salvation, you won't be saved. You'll face Judgment. And I think in some ways that's a right struggle. We should wrestle with that. If you love anyone who doesn't know Jesus, you should want them to know him. Last week we talked a little bit about how our culture is a culture of offence, that when we disagree with one another, we quickly say, oh, well, you must hate me. Disagreement is offensive. It's hard to disagree. And some in our culture would say that to say another religion is isn't true or doesn't offer what it promises. Some people would say that's hate speech, that it's bigoted and arrogant and exclusive. Because ours is a trophy that ours is a culture, sorry, that gives everyone a trophy. It gives every 7-year-old who plays soccer a trophy at the end of the year no matter how good or bad they did because we we want everyone to feel good about ourselves all of the time. And so the question of religion of life after death, we like the idea that maybe everyone's a little bit right, that maybe everyone's got a bit of an idea about truth. Because think about it, if everyone's a little bit right, then no matter what you believe, you don't have to change. No matter what you believe, you're a little bit right, and so is everyone else, and so you can just carry on doing whatever it is that you're doing, and you don't have to actually confront truth that maybe you don't know the truth about life after death. And we live in a post-truth culture where people talk about what they experience as true. Have you ever had a conversation with that? So they, they can believe something to be true and they can say that they experience it as true, but even if it's objectively false, you can't question it because they experience it. Truth becomes all about how I feel and what I reckon and less about what is actually objectively true. Now, there are some good things about that, but here's the challenge when talking about life after death. You can't experience life after death except by dying, which means if you want to know now about life after death, there's no way that you can channel it by your feelings or experience it apart From dying. Sure, you could be like Kerry Packer. You could have a near death experience and be resuscitated in an ambulance. I don't think it's wise to trust Kerry Packer's brain starved, uh, sorry, oxygen starved brain to know truth about life after death. That's me. But what that means is we need something more, don't we? We need something more than just what I reckon or what I've experienced to know about life after death. So let's turn to a range of different views on the afterlife. That second question. I think perhaps the most common solution from Westerners about competing religions is to just give them all a little bit of a participation award and say they're all a bit right. One of the most common or famous illustrations is, I think it comes from a Hindu parable, about the blind men and the elephant. Now I'm going to show you a, a silly cartoon of it. But here's how it works. When it comes to religion and truth, all people have some small grasp on who God is or what truth is, but none of them have the full picture. They're like blind men grabbing at an elephant, which sounds like a very dangerous thing to do. I don't think elephants are that friendly. But anyway, you've got one guy grabbing a tusk and saying, it's like a spear and one grabbing the tail. It's like a rope and one grabbing a leg. It's like a tree. It's a flappy ear, it's a boulder, it's a wall, it's a snake, whatever, right? Now, you get the point? The point is everyone has a small view on truth and God. They're all a little bit right, but none of them see the whole picture. There's no such thing as an exclusive truth. That's far too narrow. Christians, Buddhists, Muslims, whatever else, we all only see a small part of the bigger picture. There's no such thing as exclusive truth. Do you see the problem with that claim? There's an inherent problem, two big ones actually, with this claim. Firstly, if you say that there is no exclusive truth, well that is in and of itself an exclusive truth. But secondly, if you say no one has the full picture, they're all like blind men grasping at different parts of an elephant, you've actually committed the sin you've accused everyone else of committing. Because guess what? In your illustration, you're not blindfolded. In your illustration, you see the whole picture. In your illustration, if you hold to this, you are claiming that you, unlike everyone else, are not blind. So when Christians say Jesus is the only way to God and they're making that exclusive truth claim, the person who says everyone knows a little bit of truth is doing exactly the same thing. They're claiming that they know and everyone else doesn't. Everyone is blind except for me. And here's here's the reality. All of the world's major religions are what's called mutually exclusive. That is... If Christianity is true, the rest are not. If Islam is true, the rest are not. If Buddhism is true, the rest are not. And so if we apply this to our question, there's a challenge. Following other religions getting you to heaven? Well, the thing is they all believe different things about the afterlife. Some of them have no concept of heaven. Hinduism, for example, they don't believe in a heaven. They believe in reincarnation. And the end goal of Hinduism is to escape the cycle of rebirth and reincarnation and attain what's called moksha. And moksha is where you pop out of that cycle of rebirth and reincarnation and you end up in something called Brahman, this greater reality outside ourselves from which the Atman, the spark of your soul, came from. Buddhism, they're trying to seek nirvana by ridding themselves of desire. Because if suffering is the great problem of life, that's what Buddhism says, then the, the Sufferings caused by desire. So, if you stop wanting things, you won't ever be sad about the things that you don't have. But here's the catch in Buddhism you're not even allowed to desire nirvana because that's a desire. So, you've got to stop desiring anything in order to get to nirvana. Even those religions that do have a heaven and hell, say for example, Islam has a concept of judgment, of heaven and hell, the content of what that heaven or hell is. It's not the same as Christianity. And as much as we might like the idea that everyone is right, none of the major world religions allow it. And in fact, all of the other major world religions are quite comfortable with the fact that Christians are wrong and they're right. Muslims are quite comfortable that this Christian pastor is not going to heaven according to their religion. And here's the thing, I think we do an injustice to the major world religions when we say they're the same. We actually misrepresent them and prove ourselves ignorant. See, imagine if you're a Christian here in the room, imagine you're at uni or the workplace or wherever, and someone just stereotyped you as a Christian. And they said, you believe all this stuff that you actually don't believe. You'd feel pretty disrespected. So we actually owe it to people to ask them questions. We owe it to people to understand what they believe so well that we can say it back to them and they say, yes, now you've understood me. And I think for many of us as Christians, as we try and share Christ with people, until we've actually understood people in terms of where they're at, we probably don't have the right in their eyes to speak. A great question to ask people is, what do you believe about life after death? And then listen. Ask more questions and listen. Shows that you care and that you're interested. And maybe, just maybe, they'll ask you back. But what about being good? Let's assume that the God that Christians worship is real. Let's assume that there is a heaven. Won't being good be enough? This is a prominent idea in our culture. Loads of people in Australia, in the census, describe themselves as spiritual but not religious. Over half of the Australian population identify with one Christian denomination or another. Most of them are largely nominal, but still over half of Australians identify with that. And I think we see that in loads of ways in our culture. We particularly see it when we face death. Many Australians say things like he or she is is watching over me. He or she is with the angels now. He or she is still with me in some way. We are, we're, we're sort of grasping for hope in the midst of grief and sorrow. It makes total sense. Sounds awesome. It's some comfort. But in this nominal view of God, it kind of points paints God being more like Santa, you know, a kindly old man who stays out of your life, comes in one night of the year to give you stuff and then nicks off, costs you a carrot and a few cookies for his pets. And if we're going to talk about being good, the next question you have to ask is being good according to who? One of the great things about The Good Place is there's a character named Cheaty, and he's a professor of philosophical ethics. And the show points out that being good is really complex. Isn't it true that you and I, we often do good things for bad reasons? I mean, how many of us growing up cleaned our room and did a whole lot of things around the house, not because we wanted to serve or help out the family, but because we were going to hit our parents up for some cash? You see, even the good things we do sometimes can have bad motivations. Being good is not all that simple. It's actually very complex. And when you read through the Bible, the Bible's picture of what being good is and whether you and I are good enough, say, in a point system to get to the good place. Well, the Bible's picture of human goodness, according to God, is very, very bleak. Perhaps the most famous passage on it is Romans 3. Let me read it. It's not, it's not a real uplifting picture of humanity. It's sort of meant to make us think, oh, gosh, I can't save me at all. But here's what Romans 3 says. None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside, together they've become worthless. No one does good, not, e- not even one. He keeps going on about how bad we humans are. And he's just quoting the Old Testament, pulling bits and pieces from the Old Testament together. See, if you're anything like me, here's the kind of thing that you do sometimes. I don't know if you've done this. I'm pretty sure you have, because I, I do this sometimes. You know... You look at someone else and you find a way that you can objectively say, they're worse than me, so that you can feel better about yourself. You ever compare yourself to someone? You know, your room's neater than your siblings. Or you drive better than him. Your car's better. Your job's better. You're better at maths. Or you're better at writing. Or you're better at useful things. I do a real job they just think for a living. You know, we find all sorts of ways to compare ourselves to others so that we feel better about ourselves. But if you compare yourself to a holy God, you're always, always going to come up short. It's why the really morally upright person can really bug us. You ever, ever met that person who appears flawless? I mean, they're not. We know that they're not. But you know that person who is just genuinely good? Have you ever found yourself really disliking someone simply because of their goodness? I hope I'm not the only one in the room who's done this. Uh, Maybe I'm just worse than all of you. It's very likely. But you know what's going on in my heart there? See, those really good people, they expose me. When I try and compare myself to them, I come up short. My flaws look a whole lot worse in light of their flawlessness. And the truth is we're selfish beings by nature. You know, when, when, this, when the school photos come back, the year group photo, whose face do you look for first? You look for your own, don't you? In the family photo, the whatever photo, when there's multiple faces, you look at yourself first. I do. <laughs> still. I still remember getting the year 10 school photo back. Looked at myself. Okay, good. Nothing to be, you know, I'm not going to get smashed by my peers for that photo. And then I look for all the people that we're now going to tease for the next week because they looked funny in the school photo. You know, year 10, there was one kid whose head was sideways. There was one kid looking up to the sky. The last school I worked at, they did a huge whole school photo to celebrate an anniversary, and there was one girl, because some kids had the wrong uniform on, so they CGI'd it, and they accidentally put the girl in a boy's uniform in the whole school photo. Everyone smashed her. See, the truth is, we look for ourselves first because we care most how we look. And we lie to ourselves all the time, don't we? We lie to ourselves about our own morality. We justify the dodgy stuff we do. We lie to other people, but we don't think of ourselves as liars. But if someone lies to us once, we brand them a liar for life. But we're not a liar. We've told lies, but sure, we're not. Did you see the games we play? I mean, just think about the last two weeks. Aren't there things that you've thought in the last two weeks that were they published to the world you'd be mortified? Aren't there things we think all the time? I, I don't know if this is just me, where I catch myself and think, where did that come from? Jesus says it comes from the heart. We're all ashamed of something i got to be honest, if heaven is a place full of good people like me, who are unchanged, it won't be very heavenly because I'm not that good. And I promise you, you don't want to spend an eternity with me unless God has done a significant work in taking the sin out of my heart and life. Be miserable. So right from Genesis 3, the Bible says we're rebels and sinners. We can't save ourselves. It makes sense of our world. And apart from this truth, the Bible doesn't make sense. Because Jesus, he doesn't just show up to be an example for us to follow. He doesn't die on the cross so that we might go and get crucified. He dies on the cross to rescue us to save us, to die in the place of sinners. Yes, he's an example to follow. Yes, he says, take up your cross and follow me. He says, my sacrifice should fuel, my grace to you should fuel the motivation for you to sacrifice in your life. But ultimately, he's a saviour. Other world religions say, be good, follow the rules, get to God. Christianity says, you haven't got a hope. It's far bleaker in its picture of humanity. You haven't got a hope of getting to God, so God comes down to bring us up. Other religions say ascend to God. Christianity, God descends to save sinners. Christianity says you're dead in your sin. You need a God to breathe life into you. One author, a guy named Tim Keller, he says, we humans, we're far more wicked than we realise and God's love for us is far greater than we could hope for or imagine. Now, if you want to investigate the question of other religions more, please do. I'd say Christianity stands apart simply on the basis of grace. If you want to ask questions, send a text. But let's, let's turn to the, the big question, I suppose. Why listen to Jesus on life after death? And here's the simple answer. The simple answer is, well, he rose from the dead. That's why we should listen to him, because of the resurrection. This passage, 1 Corinthians 15, we know the the letter of 1 Corinthians was written in the mid-50s AD, so roughly 20 years after Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And in 1 Corinthians 15, we have the heart of the Christian faith. If you've got a Bible open, have a look with me from verse 3. This is the Apostle Paul writing to a church in Corinth, which is in Greece. He said, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that's the Old Testament scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas and then to twelve, the twelve, and then many others. At the heart of the Christian faith is Jesus' death for sin, his burial, his resurrection, and appearances. In verse 3 and 4, Paul says he received this body of truth. Most scholars think this is a creed. We might have talked about this a few weeks back. But what it means is that Paul, who was converted a year or two after Jesus' resurrection, had already received a creed that contained the essence of the Christian faith. It means that the resurrection was preached from the start. And in verse 5 to 9, he starts listing people. Cephas, it says in my Bible, that's Peter. Peter. And then the 12 apostles, more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. He doesn't mean that they've literally taken a nap. He's sort of saying that for the Christian, death is like falling asleep. It's not final. You wake up. And then you've got, then he appeared to James, not one of the apostles, actually Jesus' brother. I mean, think for a moment. If you have a brother, I have one. His name's Tim. He's pretty good. There's no way he could convince me that he's the son of God. Could your sibling convince you that they are God in the flesh? What's interesting is in the Gospels, it appears that Jesus' brothers did not believe that he was the son of God in the flesh. They thought he was crazy and wanted to take him home. And yet James ends up writing the book of James, becomes a leader of the church in Jerusalem. We know from another historical source that he was killed For his faith in his brother. That's remarkable. But this list of people, if you're an early reader, if you're living in Corinth in the 50s, the implications are pretty clear. If you really want to know whether Jesus rose from the dead or not, you can go and search these people out and ask them. It's why they're named. Which means this historical event is at the heart of the Christian faith. You see, the next section of this passage tells us that there were some in Corinth who were doubting the resurrection. They're saying there's no such thing as a resurrection. And by that they mean there's no such thing as a time when God will raise the dead. No one will be raised from the dead. And so Paul, he kind of goes on the offensive there and tries to show them the implications and so from verse 12, he says, well, if Christ is proclaimed as raised, how can, you, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And then he starts listing all the things that go wrong if you knock out the resurrection from the Christian faith. So verse 14, he says, our preaching, pointless. Your faith, pointless. Verse 15, misrepresenting God, dangerous. Still in sin, doomed. Those who've died trusting Jesus, doomed. Doomed. In fact, verse 19's, oh, I like it. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. He basically says if Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Christians are the dumbest people who've ever dumbed. Pitiful. Their hope is foolish. Isn't that amazing? The Bible tells you how to write off Christianity. The Bible tells you how to throw it out. It tells you that if you can somehow come to the conclusion that Jesus didn't rise from the dead, that Christianity falls apart. But it won't let you do it easily. It's why this book is dated early and the essence of the gospel dates to within a year or two and he gives you names so that you can't dodge it too quickly. Because we have to be honest, a resurrection is a big ridiculous claim. Everyone I ever know known who's died has stayed dead. So it's fair enough to doubt it. In fact, Matthew's gospel says that the disciples worshiped Jesus and some doubted after he'd risen because this thing was too unreal. But Paul affirms what he sees. Remember, he's an eyewitness of the risen Lord Jesus. Verse 20 he says, "But in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep." By first fruits he means Jesus's resurrection is a glimpse of what those who trust in him their resurrection will be like. The first fruit On a tree of a season, if it's good fruit, the rest of the fruit will be good. If it's bad fruit, the rest of the fruit will be bad. The first fruit tells you what the fruit will be like. And so Jesus, who's the firstborn from the... He's the the first one to rise. His resurrection is a picture of what ours will be. And it also means that all those things above, preaching in vain, faith pointless to be pitied above everyone else, he's saying those things aren't true. Actually, our preaching is... Not pointless, it has every point. And our faith is valuable. We're not misrepresenting God. We're not still stuck in our sin. Christ has set us free. We're not to be pitied more than anyone. And think about it, our culture loves experts, don't we? do not the news love to put experts? Don't journalists like to ask the experts about the problems that we face as a society and a culture and hear what they have to say? And that makes sense. If I'm sick and I go to the doctors, I want to see a doctor. I don't want to see a plumber. No offense to plumbers. I mean, there's some plumbing in the human body, maybe they could do some helpful things, I don't know. But I, I want to know the I, I want to hear from the expert. And we as a culture we love experience, we love it when people tell us and give us counsel and advice out of their experience that's similar to us, right? Well, Christ is the expert on life after death. Who else has died and come back to life? He's the only one who's experienced this kind of resurrection. The only one who's experienced death risen and told us about it. And because this is a historical claim, this historical claim can be tested. In historical terms, if we look at the resurrection event as a whole... John Dixon, historian, wrote the book, Is Jesus History? He, he would say that the tomb of Jesus was very probably empty. See, history isn't a science. You can't say it's proven that it was empty. He says it's very probably empty. It was never a sacred site. The tombs of rabbis in Jesus' time became sacred sites where his followers would pray. Plus, because the resurrection was preached from the start, if you really wanted to disprove it, you'd go to the tomb, pull out the body, and say, here he is. But they never did that. The disciples were all convinced. I can imagine one or two in their grief going nuts and claiming that he rose, but all of them were convinced that he rose. All of them at great cost continued to preach that until they died. Christianity grew remarkably in probably one place in the world where you wouldn't expect it to grow. In Palestine, amongst Jews initially, On the back of this claim, despite persecution and no promise of worldly gain, especially for the first 300 years of Christianity, there was really nothing to be gained from being a Christian and everything to be lost. All of which means I want to encourage you that Jesus is worth listening to on life after death because he's the only one that's risen. And if you want to wrestle through whether the Christian faith is true or not, you might as well start at the point where the whole thing will fall apart. Let's finish with some implications, some application for us to think through as, as we finish. For those of you exploring the Christian faith, can I, I I hope you see the Bible tells you where to push, where to poke, where to prod, where to explore. That if you want to throw Christianity out, the place to investigate is the resurrection. And so if you're exploring the Christian faith, can I encourage you, explore the resurrection. If it's true, it changes everything. Christianity stands or falls on this historical claim. If it's not true, if Jesus is still dead, he's not a good bloke. He's led billions astray. You can ignore him. But if he rose, he's the Lord of all. And so here here are three very simple ways that you could explore the claims of Jesus. On that table at the back, there are free copies of Luke's Gospel. Go take two if you want, or three, or four, I don't care. You can take all of them. Go read through a gospel for yourself. So many people have big ideas about who Jesus is and they've never read a gospel for themselves. Maybe you want to grab one of those books, Is Jesus History?, or Confronting Christianity, and wrestle through some of the questions that you might have. That would be a great thing to do. Maybe you want to come along to our life course at the end of Feb and explore what it means to follow Jesus, to think through who he is. Can I encourage you, because the reality of death is true for all of us, this is absolutely worth spending some time on, even if just to work out that you think it's a load of rubbish. But invest in exploring the resurrection. For all of us, I'd encourage us to not shy away from our mortality, from our death. If you're a Christian, the beauty of the Christian faith is that death doesn't have the last say. Jesus' resurrection is the death sentence. Cast on death. We still feel it and we still experience it, and there's still a wrongness in it. At the end of chapter 15, after Paul talks more about the resurrection that we will all experience, he says, In that day we will say, Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? But in that day, for now, it still stings and it still feels like death wins. But the promise that Jesus' resurrection gives to Christians changes the way we grieve. We don't grieve in a way that's hopeless, but we grieve with hope. And I want to encourage you, if you're not yet a Christian, I don't think you'll find deeper hope anywhere else. It's certainly been so many of us have had that experience here, that the hope that we found in Christ trumps everything. For those of you who are Christians here tonight, can I encourage you, cling to the resurrection. Make it your aim, and this might seem weird to say to a group of people, many of whom are quite young, make it your aim to die well, which means to live well for Jesus up until you die, to hold on to the hope of Christ. Maybe tonight you need to reevaluate your life goals. Maybe you don't have any life goals. But if we all die, and if eternity awaits us, can I, I dare to suggest that we need to dream bigger? Bigger than the car or the house or the job or becoming the CEO of that company. Bigger than becoming a billionaire or a celebrity. Bigger than travel or fun or pleasure. I mean, really big dreams. Dreams like seeing Christ's kingdom come. Big goals like sharing the gospel with your family members or with your neighbour. With your friends. Big goals like using your time and resources for Christ's kingdom and not yours. Big goals like praying that many in Campbelltown would come to know Jesus through our witness as a church and through the witness of other churches faithfully proclaiming the gospel in our area. If you're a Christian, I want to encourage you to hear these words. Flick over in your Bibles to the end of chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians. Paul talks about the hope that will come to those of us who trust in Jesus in the resurrection, that we have victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then these are his words. This is how the Apostle Paul applies the resurrection. In light of what the resurrection is and will be, he says this, Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labour is not in vain. That's an amazing promise, isn't it? I've been serving in churches and in ministry for a long time and it's really easy to feel like my labour is pointless. It is. It's really easy to feel like the little things that you do around the traps or the way that you serve don't help anyone. And Paul says, as we serve others, as we serve our king, it's never pointless, ever. And because of the resurrection, we can keep going. We can be steadfast and immovable and abounding in the work of the Lord because we know there's always a point to it. Why listen to Jesus on life after death? Well, because no amount of points or good deeds will get you to the good place. Because Jesus is the only one who's risen from the dead and come back to tell us about it. He's the expert. He's the one who left the comfort of heaven, who descended to die for us, to bring us back to God, because he knew there was no chance of us ascending ourselves, the only one who's conquered death and can give life.